This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. Canadians who are 75 and older as of next July are about to get a $500 bonus from the Trudeau Liberals. These one-time payments are expected to arrive in mailboxes during the week of August 16th. Our Zoomer squad weighed in on the details of what feels like convenient timing ahead of an expected fall federal election. Bill Van Gorder is Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Peter Mugrich is Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. And David Kravitz is Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Good thing. Nobody can say it's a bad thing. Um, and I think it'll be very needed uh, by many of the recipients and less needed by others. But it's clearly part of, um, you know, the election rollout, the high-speed uh, rail between Toronto and Quebec, there's money being thrown at British Columbia. Uh, everywhere there's a chance to pick up seats, there's going to be goodies coming our way. So uh, I can't say that it's bad, but I think it's kind of obvious what uh, what's going on. So, Peter, is this is this literally about buying votes or is this <laughs> or does this sort of mark a change in a priority for people 75 and older for the government? Well, Jane, it is it is slightly coincidental, isn't it? But, um, you know, money never hurts. And, um, you know, these are these are groups of people who need Five hundred dollars. It'll it'll make a big difference to them, and um, so you know they tie in uh, an election goodie with a good move. I, you know that that's just par for the course for uh, governments on the verge of an election. Well, and Bill, there is a two-parter to this. So there's the one-time yeah. payment of five hundred dollars, and then there is the promise of a ten percent raise in old age security for those seventy-five plus, but not until next July. So you got to vote in the Trudeau Liberals to get your 10% because it's not guaranteed any other way. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and you know, the other thing is, this is a reannouncement. This is not new. Right. In fact, uh, we, we had, we had uh, written, uh, we had written on this uh, uh, a month, a month ago when it was now the only thing that's new in this announcement is they now say it's going to be the week of August 16th. They'd already promised the five hundred dollars in in uh, in August. The other problem: there was a tremendous pushback uh, from our members because this is only for uh, people who are seventy five and older. And the people, this is the first time a government has ever made two classes of retirement uh, support, uh, splitting those between sixty five and seventy five, and those seventy five and and older. People were so upset that CARP. Paduk, which is a, a counterpart senior organization in Quebec, and the retired federal civil service organization, which represents in total a million p- uh, seniors across the country. We wrote a letter to the uh, uh, to the minister of uh, finance and the minister of seniors and said, "What are you doing? Why are you ignoring uh, the people between sixty five and seventy five? In fact, 
uh, in their situation and uh, with the changing costs as uh, as they've recently retired, many of them have more of a need uh, for more support at this time uh, than those who are older. And and 500 is uh, uh, to many people is a, a drop in the a drop in the bucket bucket. So uh, so this uh uh, this has created a very negative reaction among people and isn't going to get the government votes from a lot of seniors. A 1.3% uh, increase in old age security. So $100 a year, and, and people were saying, you know, $100 a year, less than $10 a month. Who are they trying to kid that this is going to help help anybody? And once again, it's these broad strokes of, Many people, many of our CARP members are saying, why aren't you taking this money if funds are limited and aiming it directly at those people who really need it and not casting it like, uh, like you're sowing grass seed on your, on your lawn this summer and, and no part of the lawn gets enough. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Ontario entered step three of the Roadmap to Reopening Plan yesterday. Yesterday, a welcome change for business owners who've been shuttered by the pandemic. Step three includes restaurants allowed to reopen for indoor dining, gyms and fitness centers allowed to reopen at 50% capacity, sporting events, and allowing for retail to open to the number of people that can maintain two meters of physical distancing, among other welcome measures. Ryan Malo is Senior Director of Provincial Affairs Ontario with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He spoke with me on Monday about the initial reaction of business owners who found out that Step 3 would begin five days before the original target date of July 21st. So I think there was a little bit of relief for those businesses that are still closed, the ones you mentioned, indoor dining, gyms and fitness, event spaces, to finally have a date. Um, It's been a really long time coming, especially in this third lockdown, which happened back at the beginning of April, was only supposed to be a month, and then for for these businesses, turned out to be three. So on that side, I think it's pretty positive. On the flip side, you know, the government put their thresholds out in the roadmap, and we passed them a couple weeks ago to get to stage three. So there's also a little bit of frustration out there that it has taken this long uh, that we didn't see those businesses open along with the hairdressers uh, that had opened in step two. So what is involved now for business owners who are allowing people in their facilities for the first time, in some cases, nearly eight months? Yeah, so there's a lot of planning and prep on the business owner side. You got to call your employees back. You have to, you know, if you're a restaurant, get your supply chain back in gear. There are still uh, PPE requirements from uh, face masks or shields uh, in the event of waitstaff, as well as things like plexiglass that is required. There's also a fair bit of compliance that they need to do. Business needs to make sure that they're not only screening their employees, but oftentimes screening their customers, um, especially if it's a service business like a hairdresser uh, or a restaurant setting. There's a lot of signage that's required from capacity to those passive screening sides that we see on on doors. So there's a lot of prep work uh, involved in getting the operation up and running, 
but there's still a fair bit of compliance uh, around COVID that's required as well. And it's important because we know that the Ministry of Labor inspectors are going out uh, to make sure that businesses are following the rules. And there's a pretty hefty fine, I think it's an $800 ticket uh, for businesses that are found non-compliant. We're seeing in other jurisdictions as well that are a little ahead of us on reopening, the U.S. in particular, um, and the hospitality sector in particular as well. It's been, you know, we've seen patios full across the city. It's been really great. Um, but it has been difficult to get staff to come back and to get staff to come back in numbers. We're hoping that that will sort itself out a little bit as restaurants in particular are allowed to be more open, that there is more uh, coverage for servers, more customers coming in, more opportunity for tips and things like that will help draw some of those people back out. But it's something that we're watching very closely. Prior to the pandemic, uh, labor shortage, and not just skilled labor, in some cases just finding a warm body uh, to do a job, was a huge difficulty. It was actually the top barrier uh, for small businesses across the province. It took a bit of a backseat in the pandemic, but I think we're seeing some of those issues uh, start to come back, not just the pandemic-related ones around the government program, but also an issue that was already there um, and is certainly going to be the, the next challenge for governments to watch uh, as we look towards recovery and making sure that we do get the economy back up and running in full. On educating people that it's safe to return to this level of reopening and what is actually involved in this level of reopening, how is is that going to play out and how much of a part will business owners play in the education of their customers? I think they're going to play a, a fairly large part and it's, it's going to be a little because we know with things like around masking in particular, businesses have kind of been asked to, to be the mask police. Most of the regulations don't actually put the onus on the customer coming in to have the mask on, but the business to enforce uh, the mask rule. And we know that that has been uh, contentious and put a lot of business owners in some uh, with customers who, who don't want to be wearing that mask. Um, at the same time, business owners are still trying to educate themselves on what is needed as well. Um, you know, for example, restaurants have to take in all the contact information of not just whoever booked the table, but every single person. Um, servers technically should be wearing face shields because patrons don't have to be wearing masks while they're eating. Um, uh, personal services, uh, when they come back or when they expand rather on Friday, when they're allowed to do services with a mask off, um, such as a beard trimming or a lip waxing, that will also require the person performing that service uh, to wear a shield. Mm. Not to mention all of the signage requirements, the screening, active and passive for both employees uh, as well as uh, customers and patrons. Um, there's there's a lot there on the compliance side. And unfortunately, government hasn't done a fantastic job of, of advertising it and letting business owners know what they need to do. So oftentimes we catch them scrambling, oftentimes after they've already opened, learning that there's something that they're missing or need to be doing. Ryan Malo, Senior Director of Provincial Affairs Ontario with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, doubling down on mixing and matching. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Health experts in this country, along with government ministers at the federal and provincial levels, went into damage control on Monday after the chief scientist at the World Health Organization made some confusing, controversial, and false remarks about the danger of mixing and matching COVID vaccine doses. 
The doctor later clarified she was referring to individuals who do this and not public health agencies that make policy related to research data. Our strategy panelists weighed in on this unfortunate development and how it was handled by health and government representatives here in Ontario and across Canada. I was joined by Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. Jane, this is uh, the kind of stuff that drives um, and, and makes politicians and other areas uh, around the globe sort of, you know, just crazy. Because quite frankly, who's had a number of missteps over the course of this pandemic? Uh, and, you know, and there's reasons why other countries have always looked at who and with, with a bit of a jaundiced eye, uh, because they, they just they have these mixed messages. So this is a, yet another example of, of, of a health official there who basically said, you know, and again, it, it, she's, I think she's walked it back now, but she was basically saying that mixed, mixed doses or, or vaccines was, uh, was a problem, uh, you know, when she met and she wasn't clear enough to say that it wasn't so much mixing uh, vaccines, but but the potential of, of having third or fourth doses, and that all comes around because Pfizer has made a request to to the U.S. FDA uh, for a potential third dose because they're viewing it and they're seeing that as, as variants come around and others um, that the efficacy might might not be as strong with two, but they might need a third. So you got who coming up saying this as well? You know, you should be mixing and you should be careful of it of it. And it wasn't clear, but it's the kind of it, it's the kind of uh, mistakes uh, and mismessaging that causes people, especially now that we're trying to get the, the remaining 20, 30% of people who aren't vaccinated, either first or second, to get vaccinated. Because they're saying, you know what, they're throwing their hands up in the air saying, well, you know, who can we trust? We can't trust anybody with this. And it's causing problems. And I think it's going to cause an issue uh, as we try to get, you know, people uh, on the second doses up to uh, beyond the 60, 70% range. Charles Souza, your reaction to all of this? Well, it's unfortunate. Obviously, um, Nasty also missed up, did a misstep some time ago. And yes. this only creates even more doubt in terms of the efficacy or the quality of these vaccines. But I think Nasty did a much better job this time around, uh, talking about the results that have been had, recognizing that Europe, UK, Spain, Germany, elsewhere have also been doing some interchangeable uh, work with mRNA vaccines. Canadians, you know, uh, r- reports show that these vaccines have been affected even effective even against the Delta variant. So we are having some success. So I think they're trying to reaffirm the good news story. The fact that Hugh came out with this notion is unfortunate. Nasty had lost some of its um, its relevance during the last go-around. So this does create doubt in people's mind. And um, But hey, it's, this is Coke and Pepsi that's, that's, that we're dealing with. And people say that it's been... The, 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 those that are in authority say it is interchangeable, and when taken under direction, it's appropriate. Uh, Karen, what did you think about what came out of the WHO and then reaction to it here to kind of stem any confusion or, or hesitancy? You know what, Jane? I actually thought of, Charles, I thought of your comments a couple of months back. When, when people go to get the flu shot, they don't ask who manufactures <laughs> yeah. the vaccine. Right? Like... It, it, it's just we're in a world uh, that's all new to us. And so now suddenly that there is a desire to know who manufactured a vaccine. But, you know, when I took my kids to get vaccinated against, you know, rubella, polio and the things that they are required to get vaccinated, I certainly never thought to ask who manufactured the vaccine. 
Good point. Me neither. <laughs> right? Like, it, it, it kind of doesn't make any sense. And, and from an epidemiological perspective, yeah, maybe there's not enough studies to conclusively state um, from a scientific way that this is, this is okay to do. But from a practical standpoint, she, she had no business opening her mouth because now it calls into question vaccine passports that Europe is unfolding. It calls into question, you know, people's own uh, comfort with what they've, how they have been vaccinated. And it actually didn't do any good to anybody. And so, and, 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 and I think the most damaging aspect to it is that it gave people another reason to tune out public health. Yes. Mm. And, and I think that is probably the most damaging aspect. When public health opens up their mouth without contextual, like without figuring out the, the greater picture and the context of it, it does, they do a disservice to themselves because then people give, give themselves permission to ignore advice that they think is not relevant. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Fightback's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fightback. I'm Jane Brown. We continued on Tuesday with our discussion about the miscommunication made by the Chief Scientist at the World Health Organization who warned against mixing and matching vaccines when there is strong evidence from multiple international studies that the practice is safe and effective. Fight Back gathered a panel of health experts to dispute the comments out of the WHO. I was joined by Dr. Tanya Watts, Professor of Immunology at the University of Toronto, Dr. Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University, and Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. If we've learned anything throughout the vaccination rollout and the pandemic, it's that science communications is critical to giving confidence and addressing some of the concerns of the public and and vaccine hesitancy. And sometimes context does matter and we have to understand, you know, what the intent was of the comments most recently by the World Health Organization, which was in a very specific question around boosters, third shots, and uh, going outside of public health guidance and regulations. So within that context, uh, it's perhaps more understandable, but people pick up on words like dangerous and that causes unnecessary concerns and instantaneously our members pharmacists who are involved and participating in the program get calls people are concerned about the validity and the science behind mixing which we know is safe we know based on the data and we know that this is a common practice mixing therapies in pharmaceutical care so we're certainly not introducing any additional risks for people but um, how we communicate and we've seen it with NACI as well here domestically is just uh, very important um, in giving succinct and clear messaging to people. Dr. Evans, uh, your reaction? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I'm on a bit of a roll with this. I I think this is the reflection of how not to communicate with the world through a 280-character limit, which is what you see on Twitter. Uh, uh, Justin's comments are very valid around the issue that, of course, singular words oftentimes stick out uh, and bother people uh, and and draw attention to something. And I think the use of the word dangerous was really clearly uh, not appropriate within the context of the of the tweet 
And I think ultimately, uh, you know, you then spend a considerable amount of time trying to dial back and say, well, here's what I really meant. And I take them on face value. What they really meant was, and the reason I think that they were fairly emphatic within the that first sort of poorly worded message was um, this sort of movement now quickly that we're starting to see generated by pharmaceutical uh, manufacturers about getting third doses or fourth doses because that needs to be approached really carefully um, and thought out because right now the most important thing I would say other than getting you know, a, a country like Canada or a province like Ontario fully vaccinated is to make sure that available vaccine that's being manufactured is rolled out across the planet. Global control of this um, infection is incredibly important because countries where there are a lot of uh, ongoing replication of virus are the potential generators of uh, variants which which could pose a challenge to us going into the future. So I, I think this is really a function, unfortunately, of this whole communication issue and using Twitter. Dr. Watts, your initial reaction? Yes, yeah, so well, I think I can reiterate um, many of the same uh, comments. I, I wouldn't be so hurt on, on the WHO in the sense that this was a snippet taken by the media out of a, a longer conversation. So I think it really was misunderstood. Um, but the word obviously dangerous is, is really upsetting to people. I think the real issue has been, you know, do, do people need third doses? Israel has started, um, giving third doses to the immunocompromised. So we have emerging data only as long as the vaccines have been given. And right now the data out to about seven months is if you're a healthy person and you've had, um, two doses of the vaccine, you're, you're good for now. You don't need to worry about a third dose. And really, you should be trusting the public health authorities to tell you when that third dose, if it is needed, is needed. But there are some very specific groups like end-stage kidney disease, transplant, where they have very poor responses, and there's been shown to be benefit for a third dose. And again, these need to be decisions made by the um, medical professionals and the public health um, decision makers. Dr. Tanya Watts, Professor of Immunology at the University of Toronto. Dr. Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University. And Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Lynn in Scarborough phoned about mixing vaccine doses. I've had two shots of Moderna, which I'm happy about. I'm 70. What alarms me is is that people seem to think that by getting vaccinated, that precludes them ever getting sick. And it just, it just isn't like that. Darlene in St. Catharines also called to tell us about her experience with first and second doses of COVID vaccine. My first dose I had the Pfizer, and then I had a reaction to it because it felt like somebody was sitting on my chest. And then when I coughed, every nerve in my body hurt. So then I went to my pharmacist, and I said, well, what about the Moderna? And he said, "Um, no, 
And then I went to my doctor, and he said, yes. He says, don't go for the Pfizer. You make sure you come in for the Moderna. So then I went for the Moderna yesterday, and today I'm just sleeping it all off because I feel like a truck hit me. Rachel in Brampton called about her hesitancy to getting back to normal, even though she's had both doses of COVID vaccine. I am fully vaccinated and I do have autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis. I'm not sure to what extent I'm uh, protected, right? Even though I'm double vac- uh, vaccinated, right? That's the stuff that scares me. I mean, um, they, I don't hear a lot of uh, this kind of thing talked about with Health Canada. What is the guideline? People who have autoimmune disease. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jane in Scarborough, who shared her story of grief and loss during the pandemic. My mom died in long-term care a year ago, April. Uh, the day after she died was the day that we all went into lockdown and I had to come into work and lay off everyone at work after watching my mother being brought out of the home by men in hazmat suits and she was in a white plastic bag. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be with her. I couldn't see her. I couldn't see her for the month before she died. I couldn't see her body. I couldn't kiss her goodbye. And her ashes are still in my spare bedroom waiting to be able to go and enter her ashes in the family plot in Quebec City. And I have no idea when I'm going to be able to go. And so, yeah, grieving has been hard. Um, Having to come to work, not being able to stop, having to take care of all those people that had lost their livelihood because we got shut down. It was just, and it still is horrendous. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416 416- Three six seven nine six three six. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.